You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Thanks again for joining us on the Poetry of Impact podcast. On today's episode, I'm excited to introduce Bruce Friedrich, founder and CEO of the Good Food Institute. Bruce was introduced to me from a Nexus member and previous podcast guest, Milo Runkel. Bruce talks about his early inspirations around shifting the structural food systems that entrench poverty, starvation, and injustice on a global scale. He seeks his work in protein alternatives as a combination of moral, social, economic, and environmental imperatives, trying to solve the question, how do we feed 10 billion people in 2050 without burning the planet to a crisp? Bruce also opens up about his relationship with health and food. He shares how his relationship with Roman Catholicism and meditation have influenced his own vocational self-actualization and how he translates this same way of being to his organization. He talks about key ways to structure work within an organization to prevent burnout, such as providing deep work days with minimal interruptions, creating a culture that's not based on emergency, and by building opportunities for team members to bond rather than strategize. His passion for people, animals, and the planet is evident in all the ways he structures his lifestyle. So drop in and enjoy this episode with Bruce Friedrich. Well, welcome, Bruce. Glad to have you here today. I'm delighted to be here, Gina. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, and as our mutual friend Milo that invited us, which he just has an amazing story, and he speaks so highly of you. Milo's a friend of mine through the Nexus Network, and that's how I came to hear about your name. And then after doing some research on you and having our preliminary conversation, I was like, gosh, we got to have Bruce uh, share his story. I mean, because I think you're more than an activist. You're more than a nonprofit guy. You're more than a movement guy uh, in terms of a political movement guy. And we're going to cover all that. But I think you're behind all that achievement is is a really interesting soul that's unpacking things as they go. So take us to that moment where all of a sudden it dawned on you that I probably kind of need to dive into this food thing because this is kind of a shit show, this whole industrialized food system. Well, you know, I don't know that there was an all of a sudden moment. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a little tough to know precisely where to begin. I will say that the sort of point in time where I decided that global poverty was what I wanted to try to tackle was when I was 12 or 13 years old, and it was the early 1980s. And I was seeing the images coming out of Ethiopia, and I was simultaneously going through confirmation class. We had kind of a lefty pastor at my church, and it was basically teaching current events and Matthew 25, the story of salvation, where basically Jesus says it doesn't matter what you believe or what you say you believe, what matters is when the least of these were hungry or homeless or sick or imprisoned, did you feed them, shelter them, visit them? That was sort of the challenge for what it means to be somebody who is a person of faith. And really kind of regardless of whether your faith is Christian or Hindu or Muslim or whatever else. And so that was really a challenge to me while people were starving. And then it was my first year of college when I read Diet for a Small Planet and really started looking seriously at the structural brokenness of our food system, which entrenches global poverty. 
So that's when I, my first year of college, I started volunteering in a Catholic worker homeless shelter and soup kitchen in Des Moines, Iowa, started organizing fasts for Oxfam International, was running a group called Poverty Action Now on my college campus. And that really drove my decision to major in economics. And I wrote my thesis on agricultural economics. You know, basically what I learned my first year of college reading Diet for a Small Planet, looking at what the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and sort of global systems and structures were doing through structural adjustment programs, and especially with a focus on agricultural economics. That was my my senior thesis paper. And that has just sort of continued to be the one of the motivating factors in my life. So when you use that word entrench, I want to understand that connection a little bit better. This idea of how the global food system entrenches poverty and why that word and how does it happen? One of the sort of fundamental observations and this comes through in, in Diet for a Small Planet by Frances Morlapay, which is now 51 years old. The systems that she identified have only become, as our global economy has become significantly more market-driven. And what that has allowed is, as trade barriers have come down, the capacity of developed economies to essentially use developing economies in a sort of neo-colonial relationship where, you know, more or less we plunder developing economies for their resources. One of the relationships, and it's the relationship that's flagged in Diet for a Small Planet, and it's a one of the relationships that I write about in my senior thesis from college in 1991, was the fact that we are growing massive amounts of crops to feed them to farm animals. So flash forward to today, in 2010, so I guess not quite flash forward to today, but the statistic that I find particularly arresting is that in 2010, we fed about 780 million metric tons of wheat and corn to chickens and pigs and other farm animals in this incredibly inefficient relationship where it takes about nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out. It takes about 10 calories to a pig to get one calorie back out, and it takes 40 calories to a feedlot cow to get one calorie back out. So you're wasting the vast majority of these resources. I mean, it, you know, we're not personally growing nine calories of crops to get one calorie of chicken meat, but that's what is required. So it was something like 780 million metric tons of corn and wheat fed to farm animals in 2010. By 2020, it was more than a billion metric tons of corn and wheat. So probably everybody listening is aware that the war between Russia and Ukraine and Russia's wheat production being so thoroughly disrupted has put famine onto the front pages, potential famine onto the front pages of papers all over the world. That was 50 million metric tons of wheat that has been disrupted by that war. We're literally feeding 20 times that much wheat and corn to farm animals, 20 times that many crops. And actually, that's even before you get to soy. We're feeding another 270 million metric tons of soy, mostly to chickens and pigs. That's where about 75% of soy is fed to chickens and pigs, which means 50 million metric tons could trigger a famine. And we're feeding 25 times that many crops to farm animals. And, and oftentimes what that looks like is soy from deforested Amazon in Brazil being shipped to Europe to be fed to chickens and those sorts of relationships all over the world. And that gets more and more entrenched in a sort of winner-take-all system. So back in 2008, those earlier statistics, the global envoy on food, a guy named to the UN, a guy named Sean Ziegler, he called biofuels 
a crime against humanity because essentially we were growing crops, turning them into fuel for developed economies. It was driving up the price of those crops and literally entrenching starvation. We're now feeding, and that was 100 million metric tons of of corn and wheat uh, being turned into biofuels that he said was a, a crime against humanity. The year he said that, there was eight times that many fed to farm animals. Now there are 10 times that many fed to farm animals before you even get to soy. So it's an entrenched system that essentially just makes it harder for people to eat. Wow. So lots of dots to connect here. Interestingly enough, when you're probably doing your thesis, the whole notion of climate change wasn't a topic back then, right? I mean, it really, or at least it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. No, this was 1991. So I, environmental issues were certainly a topic. And I mean, that is the point of diet for a small planet, the amount of water that's used, the amount of land that's used, et cetera. But no, I don't think climate change figured into that book at all. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is, is that you shared your story about sort of this Catholic moment in terms of being exposed to this idea of poverty and sort of the moral imperative, and then discovered making this connection to the diet for a small planet, the food system connection, the global food system. And then at some point there was probably an element of awareness around the intersectionality of all of a sudden now climate. It's like, oh, okay, now it started off poverty and moved into agriculture, and then all of a sudden this connection to climate. How are you holding all of this in your head? Because you have, obviously, an enormous analytical mind. I mean, you just kind of broke it down. Yeah, you, you broke the silliness down in, in roughly uh, five minutes. The whole global silliness of all this inefficiency and this misallocation, both of human and ecological resources. Now, climate's a beast, has a lot of different angles to approach this. But one, how are you holding it all together? And how are you packaging it up in a way when you also introduce climate to the equation without kind of overwhelming people? And I ask this because you're a person of action that's also asking other people to act. And I think this translation process is actually really important for us folks that geek on the analytics. It's like, yeah, that's fun between you and me. But at some point, how do you motivate tens of millions of people to actually act on what you and a small group of others know? Yeah, I mean, GFI's fundamental guiding question. So I started working on GFI at the end of 2015. We officially launched into the world on February 1st of 2016. And our guiding question from the beginning was, how do we feed the 10 billion people who are going to be living on the planet in 2050 without burning the planet to a crisp. And so that captures, you know, the sort of guiding issues that GFI was founded to solve. One of them is the food security issue that we've been talking about. And the other one, as you rightly pointed to, is climate change. I think there's both how do you have this conversation in a way that makes intuitive sense for people, and then how do you dive into the numbers And I think that sort of uh, sums up the question you were just asking, the how do you frame it in a way that makes intuitive sense to people? I think you say, essentially, it takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out. That means nine times as much land, nine times the pesticides and herbicides. If you are tilling that much land and growing that many more crops than you would need for plant-based or cultivated meat, that's going to take a lot more fuel and cause a lot more climate change. And it's not just that. You're now shipping all of those crops to a feed mill. You're operating the feed mill. You're shipping the feed to the farm. You're operating the farm. You're shipping the animals to the slaughterhouse. You're operating the slaughterhouse. It's multiple extra stages of gas guzzling 
pollution spewing vehicles and its multiple extra energy intensive and polluting factories. And from a sort of intuitive help people understand, you can generally stop there. Once you actually crunch the numbers, there are two things that are critically important to share with climate policy wonks. The first one is that 20% of direct emissions right now are attributable to animal agriculture, actually three things. The second thing is in 2050, there have been 11 peer review articles. Those 11 articles say we're going to need 60% is the lowest prediction more animal agriculture by 2050. Most of those 11 predictions hover at about double. So if we're at 20% of direct emissions or industrial animal agriculture now, and as we shift toward renewable energy and electric vehicles, that percentage is going to go up and up and up. But even at 20%, there is now a scientific consensus captured by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which says that even at current rates of animal product production, we are not going to be able to meet Paris climate agreement goals. The amount of industrial animal agriculture needs to go down. For GFI, we think the best way to get there is not to try to challenge the 60 to 100% more meat by 2050. We've been trying for 50 years, and nevertheless, animal product consumption has gone up and up and up. We think we should take a page from renewable energy and electric vehicles. So inexorably, the amount of energy consumed as we go to 10 billion people and as developing economies develop, there is going to be more energy produced and consumed. The trick is not to convince people to consume less energy. It's to make that energy without fossil fuels. Through 2050, as the world develops, there are going to be more cars sold and more miles driven. It's going to be impossible to change that trajectory, but we can eliminate combustion engines and replace those combustion engines with electric engines, with electric vehicles. And similarly, there will be, as the world develops, more meat, dairy, and eggs, but we can make those meat, dairy, and eggs using plant-based meat, dairy, and eggs and cellular agriculture. That's the trick. In the same way that the goal of renewable energy and electric vehicles is to win in the marketplace, solar and wind don't work unless they're less expensive than fossil fuels. Plant-based and cellular agriculture doesn't work unless the products can win on price and be at least compete on taste. They need to taste the same or better. They need to cost the same or less. And that's the goal. And that's that's essentially the focus of GFI. That's what we're doing all over the world is working on that, basically by trying to convince governments that they should be funding open access science and that they should be incentivizing the private sector in the same way that they have with renewable energy and electric vehicles, building a scientific ecosystem and working with industry all the way down from pre-startup all the way up to the biggest meat and food companies in the world. So how's it going in terms of that mission? Because there's a lot of different vested interests that you just covered there. You're talking about talking to policy people in D.C. and state legislatures and maybe even on a more global basis. You're also talking about industry, not just renewable, but to some extent, probably most of the inertia is from the legacy businesses. Like, how do you communicate on the other half of the population. And here's the thing, is is that it's always slow. Everybody who I talk to who is involved in impact wishes what they're working on would actually move quicker because it seems so obvious to them. And so at some point there's like, I have to show up on each Monday, you have to show up with the belief that it's still worth doing, knowing that it's like, geez, I still can't believe we can't get to this point. I've been working on this for 10 years. 
So I want to ask so it's two questions. One is, is that how's it been going to speak to the different audiences? And if necessary, how's the message recalibrated accordingly? And then two, just you personally, Bruce, I mean, how do you keep showing up? Because frankly, you don't know much about my background, but I come from a cattle ranching background. And so I know a big part of the narrative of the United States is part of the origins of which I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California and growing up on beef and growing up on having dairy farms and growing the corn and the the silage. And we could say in a very mortalistic way, a lot of those folks are dying because they're getting older and there's fewer young people coming in space. And most of the young people that come to space hopefully are looking more at renewables and so forth. But I mean, there's obviously a lot going on here. So maybe you can just kind of touch on on those two threads. I'd like to hear more. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Gino. Obviously, industry is everything from pre-startup to major corporations. And I think the the main pitch to industry, especially like when we're having conversations with the really big food and meat companies, the pitch is essentially, don't be Kodak, be Canon. <laughs> this is a 12,000-year-old industry, and it is ripe for transformation, cycling crops through animals so that we can eat animals is antiquated. And just like this is a phone, and I guess people are listening. So just like the phone in your pocket is a phone, even though it doesn't have a cord, and it is also a camera, even though it doesn't have analog film, we can, with plants, make something that is indistinguishable from the vantage point of the consumer to conventional meat, dairy, and eggs. And because it is so much more efficient, as it scales up, it will cost less. So you will have a product that is healthier, and safer, indistinguishable, and cost less. And that's true on both the cellular agriculture and the plant-based side. So, hey, Nestle, ADM, JBS, Tyson, Cargill, you need to see this as opportunity rather than as threat. And so far, that's going pretty well. I mean, they're, they're putting their toe in the water. You know, nobody's going completely all in, but the transformation is happening and all of the major food and meat companies are involved in both plant-based meat and cultivated meat, which we take as as absolute success. With policymakers, I went industry first very much intentionally because if industry were opposing this, the policy efforts would be a heck of a lot harder. And industry is not opposing. None of the major meat companies, none of the major food companies, none of their lobbies anywhere in the world are significantly opposing GFI's policy goals And our policy goals are governments should be funding R&D and governments should be incentivizing their private sectors. As I mentioned just a minute ago, our pitch to policy really depends on where people are on the policy spectrum. To policymakers that are concerned about global health and climate and biodiversity, we make the global health, climate and biodiversity arguments to them, as well as all politicians recognize that they exist to a significant degree to make sure that their economies are strong. The UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office last November launched a report. It said that by 2050, alternative proteins, so what GFI is working on, could be a $1.1 trillion gross value add to the economy and 9.8 million new jobs. So our argument to policymakers is, do you want those jobs and that economic activity in your country, or do you want it someplace else? In the U.S., we point out that in the 90s, the U.S. was producing north of 20% of its solar panels. Now it's producing less than 1% 
of its solar panels. On lithium-ion batteries, which are essential to the success of the EV industry, China has 95 lithium-ion battery factories. Europe has, I think, 14. The U.S. has four. So in the 90s, solar was ours to lose, and we lost it. In the 90s, EV battery production was ours to lose, and we've essentially lost it. I think there are four or five lithium-ion battery factories that are under construction because of the IRA, the Congress's Inflation Reduction Act, which was obviously also a climate bill. But let's get out in front of alternative proteins is essentially the pitch. And it was interesting to see Scott Gottlieb and Sonny Perdue, who were Donald Trump's FDA commissioner and secretary of agriculture. And they were both very enthusiastic about both plant-based meat and cultivated meat because they saw that the U.S. is currently in the global lead with both of those industries. But those industries are super nascent. So once again, it's ours to lose. We can incentivize these industries and help them, or we will lose them. But these industries are the future, and it will be the governments that prioritize them that see that happen. And then our third audience is scientists, and scientists love this. We need to educate them about it. We need to build the ecosystem, but scientists are super, super excited about the idea that they can make meat from plants and and figure out how to cultivate meat using tissue engineering. So across the spectrum of scientists that are important to this endeavor, there's a lot of enthusiasm. You just have to let them know that they can save the world through science, essentially. And then, I mean, getting back to that last question I asked also, the two-prong about you, Bruce, having to kind of show up and realizing it's not probably happening as quick as you would like. It's not happening as quick as I would like, but I mean, almost every week, definitely every month, GFI has, since I started working on it in October of 2015, every single month, GFI produces a monthly report. It's about six pages. It's the highlights of, of what's going on. It's basically just six pages of bullet points. It's very dense. And every single bullet point represents significant progress. So calling this from the, you know, 65, 70 pages that are submitted, down to six is really a joy. And you can just like flip to any page and go like this. And the bullet point that you hit on is going to be awesome. So the amount of progress. So GFI is now, we're about 175 people around the world. We were two six years ago. We have GFI affiliates in India, Israel, Brazil, Asia Pacific based in Singapore and Europe based in, in Brussels and London. And they are all doing scientific ecosystem building, policy lobbying, and corporate engagement work that is just incredibly exciting. And we are building a whole new industry in ways that just almost on a day-by-day, but definitely on a week-by-week basis. When I read GFI's weekly reports every week, and when Brian Berry, our strategy guy, and I put GFI's monthly reports, highlights reports together every month, it is just incredibly inspiring and, and such a privilege and an honor and so much fun to be involved. What's your personal relationship to actually food and nature? And I ask this because I noticed that a lot of times people are working on things, but it becomes such an abstract and and politicized construct. It could be that we lose that viscerality to the very thing that we are trying to uh, engage. So you are personally on an embodied basis. What is Bruce's relationship with food and also the natural environment? And I mean, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, natural environment, I have, you know, this is my computer and I'm you know, <laughs> looking, looking out a window at a sunset and trees, which is super lovely. I get into the sort of concrete jungle of Washington, D.C. I ride my bike around. So my relationship to personal health 
involves a lot of bike riding around Washington, D.C. So we actually have a really excellent metro system, but I live about six miles from the U.S. Capitol, also about six miles from the White House and GFI's policy office. So when I have meetings, and I have a lot of meetings, I ride my bike everywhere, which gets me out into the, (laughs) not exactly fresh air, but the air as fresh as it is in Washington, D.C. You know, very, very direct relationship to what is the climate outside, how cold is it, dictates how many layers of clothing I'm wearing as I ride my bike around Washington, D.C., and a very nice vision outside my window. My wife is Indian, and so we eat eat a fair amount of of the products that GFI is is helping to make better and less expensive, but we also just eat a lot of Indian food because she is Indian, and she is a phenomenal Indian cook. Oh, that's nice. It is super nice. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of dal, lots of lentils, lots of aligobi and sag. And so it's it's a plant. I mean, it's a purely plant-based diet, and it is a very healthy plant-based diet. And then a lot of exercise, not as much sort of nature time as people think about nature time. A very healthy meditation practice, which is really based in my Catholicism. So I am still a fairly devout practicing Roman Catholic and take very, very seriously Jesus's call with regard to the works of mercy and Jesus's call around issues of opulence. So attempting to live my life in a way that takes very, very seriously the least of these who Jesus talks about in in Matthew 25, both with my vocational life, which is completely focused on making things better for both people and animals globally who are suffering, and then sort of a personal life, how I live my life, downwardly mobile and very much not acquisitive. What's it look like to have a meditative practice in a Roman Catholic context? I guess I'm, you know, my meditation is oftentimes focused on Jesus and the Jesus prayer. So, I mean, a lot of my comp- a lot of my contemplation is just straight content contemplation. I really like Sam Harris's Waking Up app, which is very much not Catholic, but I still, you know, he's obviously one of the sort of three three new atheists. But I can work my Roman Catholicism into his meditation practice. And then at the Good Food Institute, everybody gets Headspace, so we have a we have a corporate Headspace account, and very strongly encourage people to have a meditation practice. All of our staff meetings and all of our leadership team meetings begin with two minutes of contemplative silence. Then there are also, we encourage people to take meditation retreats generally once or twice a year too. Not a lot of people take us up on that, but we, it's definitely a part, it's something that we encourage people to do. What's that term you use? Corporate headspace? Is that what you talked about? Is that what it was? Well, there's a, there's an app called Headspace. Okay. And we have a corporate account to Headspace. Gotcha. Headspace is a meditation app. It's the, there are two two main ones. One of them is Headspace and one of them is Calm. So we have a, a corporate account for Headspace and everybody in the or, everybody in the organization. I don't remember what it costs. We get a bulk discount to give everybody a basically a, an account in this meditation app. Has that been pretty well received in terms of inviting people into the silence at the beginning of the calls and taking time to meditate on a regular basis in terms of the team? It's super well received. Yeah. So we do an annual staff culture survey. You know, we don't have like organizationally, we have made a conscious decision not to have Slack. We have Deep Work Fridays. So Cal Newport has been very, the guy who wrote the the book Deep, Deep Work has been very influential on how GFI structures our work lives. 
We have the opposite of an always-on culture. We do not, nobody is expected to be responding to email from their manager, even same day, let alone what appears to be sort of the, the corporate SOP, which is, you know, you need to respond within 10 minutes. If somebody needs you, they will text you or call you. And all of that, and then the, the starting the, the staff meetings and the leadership team meetings with two minutes of, of contemplative time, contemplative, contemplative time, is a part of just the overall ethos of trying to create a workspace where people can think and concentrate and focus and are not distracted by Slack and, and constant emails. So we really do encourage people. In addition to Deep Work Friday, I think most of our scientists and other people take a Deep Work Tuesday so Cal Newport talks about scheduling your day rather than scheduling your meetings into like open slots and really to take as much time as possible off email, not on meetings in a way that you're able to actually do the, the things that make you productive and, and impactful and allow for vocational self-actualization. So we take all of that stuff super, super seriously. So when you go up to Congress and you're sitting down with senators and representatives, do you ask them for two minutes of silence before you guys engage? We do not. I like the idea. I think there are a fair number of them who would probably go for that. But no, we don't bring it into into our lobby meetings, but maybe we should. Yeah. Say, all right, Mitch and Charles, let's settle in for two minutes of silence here. I imagine people like Ro Khanna and Jamie Raskin would probably be, and Cory Booker would probably be very excited about it. But yeah, maybe not uh, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. <laughs> this is super inspiring in, in the sense that the kind of culture that you're creating there. And I think it's a mutual friend of ours. I'm guessing we both know, you know, Ari Nessel as well, I'm guessing, right? Ari Nessel is the inspiration for the two minutes of silence and the Headspace account. Oh, really? And also is uh, deep, deeply meaningful in my meditation journey. Yeah. So Ari is a GFI supporter. Ari also founded and runs a nonprofit. Well, it's a 501c4, so still a nonprofit, a lobby organization called Food Solutions Action, where I'm on the board. Yeah. I mean, you guys have uh, between you, Ari's work and Milo's work, there's obviously, I mean, you guys are quite the triad for sure. But he's also the one that introduced me to that two minutes of silence in advance because he was calling me for some other things. And he goes, how about we start with two minutes of silence? I was like, that's nice. I was like, thanks for asking. And it's really interesting because I periodically will restart that and then I forget it in terms of my meetings. It's usually a winner. About 10% of people are caught off, totally off guard and are like a little uncomfortable with it and then we'll check their phones. And that's fine. You know, I mean, teach his own. I mean, I guess we come to each moment on our own kind of terms, but it's really powerful in the sense that I think you're onto something about this idea of trying to actually interrupt the secular rhythms of time and space to create a deepening relationship with your work to actually drop in. And, you know, I did my studies in philosophy and one of the big issues, especially like postmodern philosophy was that part of the grip that the matrix has on modern culture is that it has everybody, it's structuring the rhythms of people. And as a result, it's very difficult to evoke consciousness if the rhythms are just constantly at the same pace. And it's through the disruption of rhythms uh, that the evocation of consciousness arises. And I've always taken that as that one of the small kind of brutal lessons of doing a PhD in philosophy as something that actually travels really well as a personal wellness little tactic, because it kind of works. It kind of works. And you realize that all forms of power really structure 
time and space rhythms. And I mean, not to sound too much like a postmodern Marxist, which I probably was a lot more about 15 years ago than I am now. But the idea is, is that it's, you know, in a very Foucauldian sense, a lot of the bodies that we work with and are in communion with in a secular sense, including our relationship to plants and animals, are just a da 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 I mean, it's the same pacing. And capital is a very frenetic type of phenomena that actually keeps sort of the treadmill going. And so when like you do this, I could see why it works. And yeah, it's just super special. I'm really glad to hear this. I mean, I totally didn't come into this conversation thinking I would hear that, Bruce. Yeah. I mean, it's when you think about what people are looking for to be vocationally self-actualized, they're looking to be challenged, but not too challenged. They're looking for meaningful work and they're looking for something that, that feels like autonomy. And I think all of those, there have just been some very powerful, very, very powerful work on what the always on kind of standard culture of work does across all three of those metrics. And it's super bad. <laughs> We're really training ourselves to be living from distraction to distraction to distraction. It's really, really shocking to me that capitalist economies have sort of given in to something that is just so eroding to anything like vocational self-actualization in ways that I, I feel like just have to be bad. I mean, they're certainly bad for human beings. It feels like they also have to be bad for productivity. I mean, sort of dive like in the in the sort of, you know, straight capitalism sense, not just in the sort of mission impact stance sense it's so important to GFI and other NGOs. I mean, I know that one of the things that we get constantly in our in our annual culture surveys is that people just, they love the Deep Work Fridays. If they take Deep Work Tuesdays, they love that. They love the fact that we don't have Slack. They love the fact that they don't have to be responding to email within 15 minutes. I have conversations with new staffers and they're just like uniformly, like this is so much better. Like I did not expect this and this is great. I mean, it also allows people to have families in a way that's that's a lot tougher if you're trying to balance your your family and feeling like you have to respond to your boss. If she or he emails you, you need to respond within 10 minutes. Like you're not going to get anything else done in that kind of a culture, in that kind of a world. So yeah, it's good. It's really, really good. So why does it continue to exist in a culture that's obsessed with productivity on a per capita basis? Why is it existing when it's wearing out you know, people's central nervous system and People aren't able to really drop into any parasympathetic moment for their for, for themselves. And and yet we know we're more productive when when we go from our cycling in and out between activity and rest, activity and rest, activity and rest. Why does it continue to exist? Hence, when the metric is all about trying to get the most out of people. That is such a fascinating question. I was just listening to Sam Harris interviewing Cal Newport. So Sam Harris just dropped his his Twitter account. And so the title of his most recent podcast has to do with dropping his Twitter account, but it's actually an almost two-hour interview with Cal Newport. Cal Newport. And that would be a great question to ask Cal Newport because he's like overwhelmingly convincing on the stuff that we're talking about right now. It is completely mysterious. I mean, I, I know that when I chat with people in the NGO world, about what always on culture has done to their productivity and even just basic capacity to concentrate and focus. It's, it's all bad. 
I think GFI is really an antidote to that all bad. And some other organizations are, are catching on and moving in this direction as well. But it is a mystery to me. I don't, I don't know the answer, Gino. It's, it's hard to reconcile. I mean, one thing that Newport talks about is how in the 90s, email came along and there was an expectation that we would see the sorts of productivity gains that we had seen with other advances, you know, technological advances, and we didn't. And his hypothesis is that we got those productivity gains via email and the web, but we lost just as much through this sense of distraction and why there has not been a significant corporate focus on maximizing the good, but minimizing the bad through some of the stuff that we're doing at GFI and that Cal Newport is overtly and consistently counseling. I don't know the answer to that. You know, a lot of activist organizations talk about, or I've heard this, that there's a lot of burnout because the passion's so high then, and there's, it's kind of related to what you just said, but how do you recalibrate? I'm guessing people come to you for different reasons. You mentioned 150 plus people that are part of the organization. You have to think longitudinally, like you're thinking long-term, and yet you have, it's a very activist kind of topic per se, potentially can attract that kind of person. How do you navigate who comes in and like, how have you created a kind of environment or maybe burnout is still an issue and, and you're still working on it? But I mean, can you work, work us through kind of the burnout model of nonprofits and this idea of just being so passionate about something and throwing yourself all in and then realizing like, geez, after five years, I'm crushed and I'm just here lying in my own ashes. <laughs> if you look at what the the sort of symptoms of burnout are, and they have to do with things like hopelessness is one of the key symptoms of burnout, not wanting to get out of bed in the morning, that sort of thing. We create a celebratory culture. So I think the the weekly reports and the monthly reports, which people then jump into and are, you know, applauding all the awesome that their colleagues have accomplished throughout the week. We're a remote organization and we go overboard to try to create connection in a remote world. And we've been a remote organization since pre-COVID, so we didn't encounter a lot of the COVID problems that NGOs and corporations encountered if they had not been remote and were suddenly forced to go remote. We had already been building culture very overtly and intentionally. We have funding available for teammates to get together when they are in cities and so they can charge getting together for lunches and that sort of thing. Each of the teams has in-person retreats and we have an annual all-staff retreat where everybody gets together and celebrates one another. And those retreats are really focused on bonding more than they're focused on strategy, et cetera, with a, an overt purpose of creating a team. And then I think a lot of the burnout culture really is from the, this is an emergency and how one deals with an emergency is always on. So I think that not having Slack, not having a, an instant response email culture, taking deep work Tuesdays and Fridays, like all of that. I think is a significant antidote to burnout. And then another thing that I think oftentimes characterizes burnout cultures, you know, like one of the questions that is asked to make sure people aren't burning out is, do you have a best friend at work? Does your supervisor care about you personally? And we actually measure those. So those are two of the things that we check on through our culture survey. And then we also have every supervisor has a meeting once a month with every single team member. So every single team member gets checked in on across six metrics. So there's six scales from awful to fantastic 
for things like work relationships, overall work situation, work-life balance, et cetera. And then what's gone best since we last had this conversation and what are you struggling with that I can help on since this last conversation? And I think that sort of required connection on a monthly basis also goes a long way toward ensuring that people don't burn out. Wow. I just love the insight. And I mean, you're just like a super thoughtful person. And Bruce has a cat that just crawled across his desk. <laughs> That's Rena. <laughs> Hi, Rena. Bruce, uh, we covered a lot of different things from a lot of different angles. And I just want to give you a chance to share. Sometimes there's things that don't come up that you wish did come up or that when you're in the flow of things, sometimes things are left unexpressed that deserve expression. So with that in mind, if there's something you want to finish on, great. And then also let us know the best place that people can learn more about you. Thank you very much, Gina. I appreciate that. And yeah, making animal products without animals, so plant-based and cellular agriculture, can do a huge amount to mitigate climate change, preserve biodiversity, help animals, keep antibiotics working. It's really something that solves for a lot of borderline existential risks. So I uh, strongly encourage listeners to figure out how they can plug in. And then if you would like to keep up with what GFI is doing, our monthly reports are available to everybody. And then we also have industry and policy e-newsletters, and folks can sign up for all of that at gfi.org slash newsletters. We are a nonprofit organization. So for people who have philanthropic portfolios, we would be delighted to chat with you about adding us to your philanthropic portfolio as well. I don't think there is a significantly better way for people to, to allocate philanthropic resources than GFI. And I would be delighted to have that conversation with anybody who'd like to. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Bruce, for both the time and sharing your story and then really trusting all the deviations on topics and being willing to dive in there. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Gino. I'm really delighted to have had this time with you and I appreciate the invitation. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.